Hey, it's Sarah Kaplan again. You are listening to another limited series podcast from Gate Audio. If you've joined us for our other podcasts, you'll know that Gate stands for the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, and I'm Gate's director. Our goal is to engage current and future leaders in rich conversations around inequalities in our society and how we might address them. In this podcast series, one of Gates' MBA fellows, Vanessa Coe, talks to executives about the hidden best practices for improving gender diversity in the workplace and highlights innovations that might actually move the needle on achieving diversity and inclusion. So up next, listen to what Vanessa learned. to Beyond the Business Case, a podcast by the Institute for Gender and the Economy. I'm Vanessa Ko. Each episode, we interview companies on what they're actually doing to improve gender diversity in their companies. We also highlight best practices and innovations in the field to try and change the conversation on gender diversity in business. In this episode, we talk about gender diversity in recruiting. Given a global war for talent, recruiting and retaining a diverse workforce is a more competitive business issue than ever. However, ambitions to achieve gender parity don't often translate to actual gender parity, and there are multiple obstacles along the way. So first I wanted to dispel some myths. While we think that discriminating based on gender, race, religion, what have you, is declining, is this actually true? How common is discrimination in recruiting happening? I talked to Sonia Kang, a professor of organizational behavior and human resources at the Rotman School of Management who has done a large-scale research study on discrimination in hiring, which later became an article in the Harvard Business Review called The Unintended Consequences of Diversity Statements. In that project, we really wanted to look at what individuals are doing um, in order to avoid discrimination that they might face in the job market. So previous to this point, um, people had really in research had focused a lot on what organizations were doing either to sort of create discrimination or what they were doing to try to combat discrimination. But we didn't really know a lot about the applicant side. So what individuals were actually doing when they were applying for jobs um, in situations where they knew that they might experience discrimination. So we really wanted to get more of a handle on that side of the story. So we specifically focused on um, a behavior which we called resume whitening, which is concealing, um, changing or concealing cues on your resume, which might make it more obvious um, as to what racial group you belong to. Um, And we looked at that in a couple of different ways. So first we did um, a series of interviews where we basically just asked people about their experiences with resume whitening. So we just asked them, you know, have you ever done anything on your resume um, or in job application materials to make it more or less obvious that someone would know what race you're from. So how common is resume whitening? What we found was that whitening was relatively common. So about a third of people in our sample said that they had whitened their resume. Um, Two thirds of them said that they knew someone else who had. So the number is somewhere in between those two. Um, And we found that there were a couple different ways that people would whiten their resumes. So either they would change their names or they would change the description of their experiences. So they might do that by adopting, um, you know, a, a, a name that um, a more anglicized name. So for example, someone with a Chinese name like Ming might choose to go by May on her resume. Um, they might just use an initial or um, they might um, change their name in some other way to make it less obvious that it was attached to a racial group. Okay, so resume whitening is actually pretty common. And this might be an obvious question, but why were most people doing it? 
In terms of why, basically, not that surprising. Um, you know, 100% of people that we asked that question to said that they did it to avoid avoid discrimination. So they knew that they might experience discrimination, so they wanted to avoid it, so they thought that this might be one way to do that. Um, on the other side, why people might choose not to wait in their resumes, we heard a lot of interesting answers, but one of them that kept on coming up again and again was that people said that they would be less likely to whiten or would just not whiten at all. They would be more transparent about their race if they're applying to jobs with um, a pro-diversity statement. So you're probably familiar with these kinds of statements. We see them all the time on websites and on um, company websites on company job ads where it'll say something like, you know, we're an equal opportunity employer, or, like we value diversity and inclusion. And so the next thing we wanted to know um, was whether that's actually the case. So is it the case that when uh, minorities see those kinds of statements, are they actually more transparent about their race? So what we found was that in the condition where participants saw that diversity-friendly job ad, they were half as likely to whiten than in the condition where the employer hadn't mentioned diversity at all. When they see that pro-diversity language in the job advertisement, they're taking it at face value. So they think, you know, okay, this employer is going to value diversity, so I'm going to showcase how diverse I am. I'm going to leave on all this information about my race, about, you know, my foreign work experience or my foreign credentials or use my real name. Um, whereas in that control condition, they were, they were whitening it. So the next thing that we wanted to know was whether that is a good idea. So is it actually the case that those pro-diversity employers are going to be pro-diversity? Is it the case that they'll um, hire, there'll be better outcomes in terms of hiring for minorities who are transparent with those racial cues? So what we found is that in terms of um, the callback rates that we actually received across all of our, all of our waiting conditions uh, and our racial conditions, um, those applications where it was hard to tell that the applicant wasn't white, so where we would actually whiten them, were two to two and a half times more likely to get a callback than resumes that were transparent about race, so where it was obvious that the applicant was black or Asian. Um, the most surprising thing about the finding and why we call this paper, why we call the, the paper that you're talking about the unintended consequences of diversity statements is that those um, employers who had the pro-diversity language were no different in terms of discrimination rates than the employers that didn't mention diversity at all. So we still saw that two to two and a half times callback gap for the pro-diversity employers. So we talk about this as sort of an unintended consequence because the diversity statements are sending a signal to applicants that this is sort of a safe thing to do. It's safe for you to reveal your true identity, you know, to use your real name, be transparent about your experiences, be transparent about your education. But what we see is that they don't discriminate any differently from employers that don't have those statements at all. So for some people, then the diversity statements can actually open them up to more discrimination because they're encouraging them to reveal or to reveal their um, racial cues in a context where discrimination is still common. Mm. So the implication is that it's it could be more harmful for candidates. Yeah, exactly. Apply because, to companies that are more pro-diversity. Right, because they have those statements, and unfortunately, the statements aren't accompanied by differences, real differences in terms of hiring. Mm -hmm. So how do we safeguard against some of these, I guess, deeply ingrained unconscious biases, whether or not we have diversity statements that our companies are not? Yeah, so I think, well, okay, so diversity statements, I think, are really just a first step. Mm -hmm. So I think... You know, people often ask this this question about this work about, you know, why would 
companies have diversity statements in the first place. And there's some cynicism there, right, where people think that they're just doing it for show or they're just doing it to avoid lawsuits, that kind of thing. But I think really people do have good intentions when they put into place diversity initiatives or diversity training programs, diversity statements. But it's very hard for us to connect our intentions the way that we want to act to the way that we actually end up acting because of things like our underlying biases. So a lot of work has been done on um, things like unconscious bias training, for example, and found that it's basically ineffective. So having unconscious bias training, you might as well not have it. It's like kind of a waste of money um, because it's very hard to change people's unconscious biases in any kind of meaningful way that lasts over time. So really, I think what needs to happen more so is a change at the structural level. So, um, for example, to the way that people are making decisions to make them less likely to act on those biases, if that's what you're looking for. So, for example, in the hiring space, um, you can train people all you want to not express their unconscious biases, but unfortunately, we just don't see the results of that. So I think other kinds of initiatives that change the way that the task is structured, for example, looking at resumes, can be more helpful. So, for example, when people are looking at resumes, um, you'll often see like a pile of a hundred or hundreds or even a thousand resumes that you're supposed to go through. When you have that kind of pressure, it's not surprising that you fall back onto kind of your, you know, underlying unconscious biases. So, Making that task easier for people, I think, would take out a lot of the bias that we see. So just structuring that task in a different way. So despite our best intentions, unconscious biases are skewing the recruiting process and leading candidates to tone down their diversity. With this in mind, I talked to a recruiter, Martin Hawk, to get the other side of the story. Hi, Martin. Thanks for joining us today. Have you experienced resume whitening in your work as a recruiter? I spend a lot of time saying no to people. I still spend a lot of time saying Unfortunately, we're not moving forward at this time, right? That's a hard thing to say, but um, they'd still need help. They'd still be looking for a position, even if we weren't the organization to uh, move forward with those candidates. And a lot of them would come back and say, okay, thanks. I appreciate you letting me know that I'm not moving forward in the process, but I am very interested in, you know, knowing what I could do better. Um, And a lot of that had come down to sometimes with to a, it would come down to folks asking some really serious questions like, should I change my name? Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing that frustrated me just because it wasn't fair. Nobody should have to change their name in order to get more callbacks. Yet when people did it, um, they would they would see better results from a candidate experience standpoint. They would get more callbacks. So your personal experience with this and recruiting led you to create a tool called Unbiasify. Can you tell us what it is? Unbiasify is exactly that. It's a Chrome extension that recruiters and hiring managers and anybody involved in the recruitment process can use if they use Chrome to eliminate unconscious bias during that process of, okay, I know I need to hire a salesperson, but I want to do my initial selection process in an unconscious bias sort of way. I want to eliminate the bias that exists. So if an individual is self-aware enough to recognize that they do have unconscious bias, they could use Unbiasify. It's a simple tool. It's for it's free. You download it and you flick a switch and then all of a sudden people's pictures 
and people's names are eliminated from, from LinkedIn, Twitter, AngelList, a bunch of other websites now. So I use it on a regular basis when I'm sourcing candidates. Um, and I also spend a lot of time sort of evangelizing about it, like talking about it right now. I know the folks over at Mars uh, use it as sort of an educational tool when talking about unconscious bias to just prove that it exists. Because when you do a search online for candidates and then you do a search online looking at candidates with Unbiasify on, it's very different because you're naturally inclined to look at someone's face on LinkedIn if they have a profile picture and then automatically you make all these these unconscious biases creep in like, oh this person looks like me this person looks really friendly they're smiling whatever the case might be it's innocent um but ultimately that leads to you know familiarity bias or similarity bias so you're a recruiter so focusing on diversity issues in recruiting makes sense for you is focusing on recruiting the best place for companies to focus on to tackle diversity issues I don't really believe that you can solve the problems of diversity through hiring alone. But starting something like Unbiasify was sort of like taking it one step further. If you can't necessarily hire your way into a diverse organization, which is essentially if that's all you did and you said, okay, well, our company's 10%, you know, there are. 10% of our company is women. We need to get to a 50-50 parity. And then all you do is recruit women to, to meet that parity level. That's essentially tokenism. And that's not really building up your company for success. And it's not building up those people that you bring into the organization for success because it's not coming from a place of wanting to genuinely create equality. It's just like, okay, because the industry is talking about this, we need to do X, Y, Z. And it's sort of like a knee-jerk reaction to the problem as opposed to saying, okay, well, there's a systemic problem here that goes beyond recruiting. So, I mean, Unbiasify is sort of an attempt to do more than just hire individuals. It's an attempt to make unconscious bias less of a problem. So using tools is one way to start taking some action on recruiting. I then wanted to see what other tools were out there for companies to use in recruiting to create that structural change that Sonia had mentioned. I got introduced to Nokri, which is an AI startup and tool that removes biases in the recruiting process. A bit similar to Unbiasify, but this one tackles video recruiting. I talked to Maz Rana, one of the co-founders, along with Jay Ansari and Faisal Ahmad, about their motivations for developing an AI tool to remove unconscious biases in recruiting. Nokri is an uh, artificially intelligent um, AI video assessment tool. Um, and essentially what it does is that it's able to gauge and quantify people's soft skills, things like, let's say empathy, or there's a term called growth mindset or confidence even, and their verbal and nonverbal communication skills. And we're able to, it does this through video. So we have candidates answer a few questions through video, a uh, job candidates, and they respond to it and we can quantify how good their communication skills are or how well they're attuned to the specific job role that they're trying to apply for. What was the motivation behind starting Nokri? The story starts out um, back in uh, around like three years ago and Jay was actually looking for some jobs and he was applying all around with his resume 
And what ended up happening was that he wasn't hearing back from many of the companies that he was applying for, applying to. And he has a pretty good resume. He has great, like, you know, soft skills as well. But obviously those don't get communicated through resume. But uh, one time we were just sitting down and he was kind of frustrated. And he's like, listen, Ma, I was like, I've been spamming like my resume everywhere. I have the keywords. I know it's a down pat, but I'm not hearing back from anyone. And Jay's actual name is Jahanzeb Ansari. And that's what he had on his resume. So I'm like, listen, Jahanzeb, your name's too long. Let's try changing it. Right. So what we ended up doing is that we took uh, Jahanzeb and we changed it to Jason. And literally almost by not like after like two, three days, he started getting responses back from employers. And by three weeks, he had an interview and he got a job that's one so that's when we started realizing things like unconscious bias are still very much alive and they're occurring in the job market right now so we've helped like employers build uh diversity in their teams by around 23 percent so far and the thing is that we what we always say is that knockery helps solve a problem with diversity inclusion during the early stages of hiring so AI can help companies remove unconscious bias by being an objective screen for bias. At the same time, recruiting can't all be left to technologies. Policies that measure and track diversity and improvements, create a culture of if you see something, say something, that permeates up to the leadership are also important. Unbiasify and Nakri are just two examples of tools out of many that are out there to tackle this issue. Huge thank you to Sonia King, Martin Hawk, and Maz Rana for their views on this episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Beyond the Business Case. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. To listen to our other limited series podcasts, check out the Gate Audio channel on Apple Podcasts or the Gate Audio playlist on Spotify. For additional myth-busting research and game-changing guidance, please visit gendereconomy.org. And thanks for listening.